0: Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks and enjoy the episode.
1: So both of these strategies are really used to respond to students who are typically experiencing some kind of emotional outburst. That means that most often these techniques are used on students with disabilities.
0: There are few things as local as the coverage of a community's schools. But what happens when a local paper is able to leverage the power of a newspaper syndicate to deliver an impactful investigative story about an issue affecting schools across the country? I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. The Hearst newspapers recently finished a year-long national investigation of how schools across the country routinely restrain students or keep them in seclusion. In some extreme cases, children have died. Brendan Lyons is a managing editor for the Times Union in Albany, New York, where he oversees the Capitol Bureau and Investigations. Emily Munson is a data reporter for the Times Union. And Matt Rochelow is an editor overseeing data investigative projects for the Times Union and Hearst Connecticut Media Group. Brendan, Emily, Matt, welcome to It's All Journalism. Glad to be here. Thank you. Okay, so so first of all, I like to start out by getting to know a bit about my guests. So let's start with you, Emily. What got you interested in journalism and how did you end up as a data reporter at the Times Union?
1: I took my first journalism class in high school and I kind of caught the bug there and have been working on reporting in some fashion ever since whether it was at my college newspaper through internships or eventually you know getting a job as a professional reporter. So I've been with Hearst Newspapers for about 6 years now and in June of 2021 started this new role as a data reporter.
0: Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you and Matt a little bit about data reporting and what that means at the Times Union. But Matt, tell me about your career as a journalist and what your job overseeing the data investigative projects team is all about.
2: Yeah. So I got into journalism in, in college at UMass. I worked at student paper there, interned at a few places, and then ended up doing a um, an internship or a co-op at Boston Globe. After I graduated, I spent about 10 years there doing a mix of data and investigative reporting, and most recently on on the spotlight team. And then about a year and a half ago, a little longer than that, this opportunity came along to work at Hearst uh, with these lovely folks and a lot of really great, talented colleagues across the Hearst network. So working not only at the Times Union in Hearst, Connecticut, but on on projects like this, getting to work with some of the other papers in, in Texas and San Francisco.
0: Well, let me ask you, both you and Emily, at this point, data journalism, you know, was that something you had set out to do or, you know, how did you sort of that become kind of the path that you were pursuing? Start with you, Matt.
2: Yeah, it was It was not something I envisioned initially. I, you know, was given an opportunity by an editor at The Globe. I'd done a number of stories that involved data and he approached me and said, you know, would you want to do this on a more regular basis? So basically a full-time data reporter. So from there, I I jumped in and it's worked well. The timing's been great. That's obviously you know, become more and more a part of our industry. So uh, it's been really enjoyable to work on. Is that sort
0: of in your experience, Emily?
1: I didn't directly set out to become a data reporter. Prior to this, I spent years covering politics at the state level and in Congress, but data reporting is really an avenue to uncover stories that you wouldn't otherwise know about, right? So it's just a new source of information to otherwise uncover key stories about our communities that we would want to write about. So I I think that's what draws me to it is, is having this other way of investigating our state and our communities.
0: Brendan, let's tell me about your career in journalism and how did you end up at the Times Union overseeing the investigative team? Sure. So... Real
3: quick, I I grew up as the son of a newspaper publisher, and on Saturdays, I used to tag along when he would go into the office. He came up through the advertising side, and I gravitated toward uh, the newsroom. Back then, they were all using typewriters and had cigarettes clenched in their mouths. But I worked for, for a slew of daily papers before landing at the Times Union in 1998 and starting on the crime beat. But a few years later, the Times Union decided to establish a investigations team and I became part of that team and we began doing a lot of state government coverage and deeper reporting than had been done in a cohesive way by the Times union for many years and that effort has evolved through the years but the Hearst Corporation were blessed in that they invest in investigative journalism. And that mindset helped establish the data team that Matt heads, which is a a shared resource between the Times Union in Albany, New York, and the Connecticut Media Group for Hearst Newspapers.
0: Okay. And so the resources that you're able to sort of draw on, are they not just the investigative team here, but also, I mean, maybe some of the resources across Hearst's, you know, selection of newsrooms?
3: That's right. And Matt can speak to that too. His team really did a great job of when they the idea to launch the restraint and seclusion project took shape. They expanded it to include our brethren or papers in, in California and Texas. And it really, I think, was a great way to do this project so that you could get a national breakdown and a national level incisive look at this issue.
0: This project is pretty amazing. And it surprises me in lots of different ways, not the least of which is how did you decide that this was the story that you were going to put resources toward? You know, Brendan, what do you, you know, tell me about that.
3: I credit our Connecticut colleagues for that. I believe that this started with, was it Emily, an education reporter there who, who came upon a case of restraint and seclusion in schools and like any good reporter just started to question, hey, how widespread is this? And that, that was the origin of this project.
0: Hmm. How did the the Hearst team sort of tackle this? Is a story that came from one one paper, one newsroom. You know, how did you get all the other papers involved? How many people were
2: involved in this project? So like Brendan was saying, we, it did start with, you know, one reporter and editor in Connecticut kind of initially pitching this as, you know, let's look into some cases in Connecticut specifically. And I think the universal thing when, when that you know conversation first started and then as conversations happened throughout the newsrooms was everyone was a bit surprised that these practices even happened in schools. A lot of people, I think, you know, journalists didn't know. A lot of readers we've talked to and people in the, on the community, unless they were intimately involved, didn't know that this went on. So that kind of really drove everyone's curiosity as journalists to look at the issue. And, and immediately once we started to research it, we knew it was a much bigger issue than just happening in, in Connecticut or any one state. And as Brandon said, having the resources first does, there was just a lot of great support from folks in Connecticut, the times union and our other papers in Texas and San Francisco to support and put their resources behind this project to team up on it. So, you know, I think as soon as we started to research the issue, we realized that we could do something bigger. We didn't see that this had been looked at in the same way we want, we envisioned nationally.
0: Emily, what was your, what was your role in this project? You know, when did you get involved?
1: I was lucky enough to be involved pretty much from the start when we started to have initial team meetings about looking at this issue in a national way. And so I worked with Matt and our other reporters to collect data on the use of these practices across the country. We also fought really hard to obtain records from school districts in New York, illuminating the use of these practices there. And I interviewed countless families and teachers across the country for this project.
0: My own personal experience of covering, you know, issues about students in the school system is the school system is, you know, almost always, the school district is almost always, oh, that's, that's private data, you know, that involves our students. We don't share any of that information. How are you able to, you know, crack that and get some of that information?
1: I'll take a stab at it and then Matt can fill in with whatever I left off. So we pursued data through three avenues for this project. The first was going after data that's collected by the U.S. Department of Education through their biannual civil rights data collection process. So they actually collect some federal data on the use of restraint and seclusion in schools nationwide. However, one of the issues we found with this data set is Number one, the last time this data had been collected and then published was the 2017 18 school year. So, this data was several years old at this point. In addition, there have been several reports underlying the flaws in this data set, including significant levels of underreporting through school districts. So, after we took a look at this federal data, we knew we needed more in order to get an accurate picture on the use of these practices across the country. So at that point, we decided that we would request data from state education agencies because about half of all states, or a bit more than half, do collect their own data on the use of restraint and seclusion through their state education department. So we actually sent public records requests to all 50 states And we got whatever information the states had and then compiled that data in a way that no other reporters had done to date. Finally, in some places where there wasn't state data, for example, New York does not collect any state data. We knew that we would have to go to the school districts in order to get information that was more up to date than the 2017-18 school year. So... In New York, we made public records requests to 22 school districts around the state, including some of the largest districts like New York City, Albany, and Buffalo. And through those districts, we obtained uh, five years of reports documenting incidents at these districts on the use of restraint and seclusion. We ended up uh, getting tens of thousands of pages of records back. And then we had to use a machine learning software to process all of those records and turn them into a data set that we could then analyze. So we, in essence, had to build our own data in New York in order to start to get a look at the frequency of use of restraints and timeout rooms in New York.
0: It's probably a good point for us to sort of talk about what it is that you actually were reporting. Can you tell me, you mentioned restraint and timeout rooms, what type of students You know, did this apply to what was the situations in general that this had to deal with?
1: So when I say restraints, I'm primarily referring to an educator using some sort of physical technique to hold a child still, whether that is in the seated, standing or lying down position. In addition, some schools have specific rooms Sometimes they're quite small, more like a closet with a door that will close, and they may be padded on the inside with gym mats or something similar. And these rooms are used for the purpose of calming students in crisis. And so students may be closed in these rooms alone for periods of time. And in some places, these are called seclusion rooms. In some places, schools have what are called timeout rooms, which can be similar. So both of these strategies are really used to respond to students who are typically experiencing some kind of emotional outburst. That means that most often these techniques are used on students with disabilities. We also saw from our research that the interventions are disproportionately used on black students and boys.
0: Hmm. Interesting. You have all this data, Matt. You know how do you how do you decide this would be the best way to tell this story?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great question because we ended up with a with a lot of different a lot of data from different sources, and as you can imagine, each state agency to to keep the data different from one another. So while the federal data set that Emily was talking about was, you know, all just one data set, she referenced it was several years old and it also had a lot of flaws, namely the underreporting issue. So when we Combining the state data became quite tricky. It was a lot of back and forth with states to confirm definitions and to understand what exactly each state was counting so we could um, look at them in a cohesive way, in a a consistent way across all states. And of course, in addition, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, beyond some of the data and records we've been talking about, there were just, frankly, a lot of people we talked to, dozens upon dozens of interviews with agencies, state officials, experts, advocates, you know, of course, parents teachers and some students themselves. So there's a lot of additional context to put the data in perspective and these records in perspective.
0: I had a chance to look through the report last night and it's very comprehensive. It's very moving as a parent to, you know, imagine your child in some of these situations and the fact that it seems so like almost out of nowhere for, I I guess, for the average person, you know, like, oh, you know, this doesn't sound like something that would go on in my school. But you know, the data seems to suggest that it is fairly common. You know, Brendan, as this story was developing, you know, well, first, how long did this story take? And then, you know, what type of deadlines were you setting? How did you focus the story?
3: Well, this team did a good job of, like any investigative project, the end date gets moved back a lot, right? We've seen that with a lot of our investigative projects where when there's incomplete data, or there's a need for additional reporting, that'll, that'll push timelines back. But I thought that what was really good about this project was that it also delved into the issue of causation with this in terms of, this is a regulated practice in most states, it's permitted and it is a system where primarily children with developmental and, and emotional disabilities are the ones who are becoming involved In these incidents and and the training became an issue, I think. And they can speak more to that. But I was I was glad that that the series really got into the heart of what was going on here. It wasn't just, aha, people use restraint and parents didn't know and are angry about that. I think the, the greater issue here is that there has to be some method to handle a child who's unruly and in danger of harming themselves or someone else. You know, in addition, one of the stories examined some alternative methods and solutions for that. This was, I would say, they did a fantastic job at covering every angle of this project, including the reaction at the end from lawmakers who said, we need to do a better job here.
0: Okay. You anticipated one of my questions, which was, you know, what was the reaction? I would imagine it, again, you know, it probably surprised a lot of people. I said this at the beginning that in extreme cases, you know, some of these students died, but- You know, many students, you know, had um, bruises and other evidence that the restraints were were more than just, you know, telling them to sit down. And also the fact that you were able to incorporate personal stories. That's always a a great thing in a story like this. I mean, it's very easy to make it very, you know, as you sort of said, this is, oh, these things are happening. But what are the causes behind it? Emily, which of the stories were you working on?
1: (laughs) I was fairly heavily involved in most of the stories. I think I wrote five. While we all collaborated on a national look at this issue, I was a primary author of that piece. In addition, I explored why there is no federal law governing the use of restraint and seclusion in schools and researched extensively how the state laws governing these practices vary dramatically from state to state. I also did two stories examining the use of these practices in New York, covered the reaction from lawmakers afterwards. And what am I missing? We had a kind of a story recipe that we published explaining how we reported this project. So I think those are the pieces that I was most heavily involved in.
0: I like that you included that last story because I think that's something that's always important, you know, especially when it involves the acquisition of large sets of government data and then also, you know, various a- aspects of why you're covering a story like this. So, we did discuss a little bit the reaction, but when this was published, I mean, what was the general sense from Hearst readership? Did you get much response from the audiences around the country? I don't know who would be, whether it's Emily or, or Brennan, would that be a better question for you?
3: I could just say that the, the response that we received when we published the stories in the times union was pretty remarkable there was even some feedback from a parent who said that they had read these stories and it brought tears to their eyes and i think that most notably i was proud of the work that this team did because they they drew the immediate attention of lawmakers and i think you're going to you're going to see some changes as a result of that here and nationwide
0: that's what we all hope for when we cover stories like this Matt, you know, is there anything that you would have done different in covering the story if you had more time and resources?
2: As Brendan said, we covered the issue pretty exhaustively. I think you know, one one thing we really tried to focus on, and it was difficult to get, was to try and get visual elements and stories of you know what these seclusion rooms look like, what these timeout rooms look like, and what it looks like to see a child restrained in school. It was certainly a, a challenge given a lot of schools that we were talking to were maybe a bit hesitant about letting us in and letting a photographer and a a reporter in, we were able to get into some schools and also just simply the fact that a lot of restraint incidents aren't out on camera per se. And so I, I kept going back to, you know, what started a lot of our curiosity as journalists on this project was that a lot of us didn't know this happened. So knowing that we needed to pretty quickly show readers as best we could, you know, what these practices actually look like to give them a visual and I think we did a a good job at that, like putting that some powerful is in video clips high up in the in the coverage. But of course, being able to get more of that footage would have been all the more helpful.
0: Yeah, obviously, sometimes you're going to be restricted by what you're able to do. I, I'm amazed at what you were able to get from the school systems that allowed you to do the reporting that you did. I was wondering, you know, what would what would each of you recommend for somebody who who sees the Hearst report and says. I wonder if this is going on in my school system. What would you say to a newsroom? What would you say to a reporter, an education reporter? How about you? I'll start with you, Emily.
1: I would let them know that our reporting contains a tool where you can search the cases of restraint and seclusion in any school district in the country. So I would say use our reporting to look into your own district. In addition, we published publicly all of our data that we collected from every state. And we're willing to share that data with other journalists. So take a look at the data that we collected from state education departments and the analysis that we did of U.S. Department of Education data from every state to help learn about what's going on in your area. And hopefully that's illuminating for for parents or other people interested in this issue. And for journalists who want to keep reporting, we're happy to share some more information with them.
0: I like the fact that you're being so open about it, people don't have to reinvent the wheel for this project that you, you know, show your work so that others can learn from it and use it to inform their further reporting.
1: If it's okay to add more more thing about the impact of this project and what we heard afterwards. So after the story published, we spoke to lawmakers in Congress and, and state lawmakers in various parts of the country And we heard several things from them. You know, some lawmakers were really interested in changing the laws, governing the use of restraint and seclusion in their area in order to place more restrictions on how these practices can be used in the hopes of protecting some students. We also heard from lawmakers that there needs to be more of a conversation about how to serve some of these students with disabilities in the school districts in a better way and how can school districts be supported with more resources for mental health care and resources overall for public schools to ensure that teachers have the training and schools have the level of staff in order to support an increasingly diverse and sometimes needy student body.
0: The one thing that one of you mentioned, I don't know, it might have been Matt, the data revealed that the majority of the cases involved uh, boys and students who were Black. You know, what was it you were able to do with that information? How did that sort of inform your reporting? And how did you, you know, make that an aspect of the story you were telling?
2: There were sort of three areas where there were a disproportionate use of restraint and seclusion. And this is seen even when you drill down and look at the federal data by state and, and many districts, but it was that students with disabilities are restrained included more often, significantly higher rates, black students, and boys. And so we knew that early on in, in the reporting process that was available through the federal data. There'd been some other coverage of that, those issues. And then we used that to help sort of direct where we we're going to go and where to look further. For example, we looked into Emily really thoroughly looked into investigations by the Department of Justice and by the Department of Education that had found, again, because disproportionate use doesn't necessarily mean there's discrimination, but those two agencies did find in a handful of federal investigations they did across the country that there were certain districts, certain schools where discrimination was happening, whether it was to students with disabilities or students who were Black or boys. And that was a major focus of our piece and, and something we tried to tell readers about.
0: And Brendan, from your point of view, what, I mean, what did this uh, project accomplish and why is it important to do projects like this and to invest in investigative journalism like this?
3: I think what this project accomplished, one, was that it showed and demonstrated that it's been a long time since the Hearst Corporation has done collaborative journalism like this. It's not unprecedented. It's, you know, we've worked through the years with other sister papers on projects from illegal steroid use and that sort of thing. This really, I think, raised the bar for the Hearst Corp to go out and continue to look at home run projects. And it also brings home the fact that these projects can be led by small to medium sized daily newspaper staff too. That is where I think a lot of great investigative journalists still do work and do important work. And it's something that I hope will continue to flourish for the Hearst Corp and for the Times Union.
0: Brendan, Matt, and Emily, thank you for talking about this. This is And thank you for doing this project and thank Hearst. You know, when you find Hearst, tell him thank you. But as a parent of two children with disabilities who's had his own run-ins with the school system, this type of reporting, this type of project is long overdue. There's just so much that's going on in the schools that people aren't covering. And, and I know we're always talking about you know, news deserts and shrinking newsroom staffs. But, you know, there's so many things I can point to where, you know, an investment in, in investigative journalism can make a huge change in a community. Anyway, I think that's what you guys accomplished. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank Thanks you.
2: Right
3: you. you bet.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found.